Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. And as always, uh, we have Emily Yashinsky back on the pod to close out the month. Um, Emily is, of course, a senior fellow with us at IW. Um, she's also the culture editor over at The Federalist. She does various journalistic things uh, over at YAF, Young America's Foundation. And she co-hosts Breaking Points on Wednesdays um, with Ryan Grimm um, over at Crystal and Sager's Breaking Points podcast, which I'm pretty sure has a much bigger audience than CNN. Um, <laughs> Emily, welcome back. Thank you, Inez. I hope we have a bigger audience than CNN's cable network, failing the failing CNN cable network. Yeah, um, CNN apparently like really doing badly. Weren't there some numbers released this week that they have like basically a football field's worth of audience? And yeah, it, it's one of their worst. I mean, they were trending downward, but they recently the ratings came out for 2022, and it was one of their worst years of all time. <laughs> well, it couldn't have happened to a nicer crowd. Uh, <laughs> although I think that's that's basically the story of nearly all cable news, right? It's not just CNN, although it's fun to to dump on CNN for being the worst at it. But um, so there's there's probably some hope actually there. But um, I, I suppose we have to off air. I was talking about we have to talk a little bit about the Trump arrest and kicking off 2024 or like neither of us is particularly in the mood to do it, but we're going to hit the high points for you. <laughs> and then we're going to go gossip about a bunch of cultural stuff that we find really interesting and probably uh, more important just because not because who gets elected in 2024 isn't important, but uh, because we're going to have a year and a half to do this people like there's, this is going to be on your, your radar screen <laughs> constantly for the, the next year and a half. Um, but that being said, I mean, Emily, what's your sort of 10,000 foot take on um, the potential for a Trump arrest, which seems lower and lower every day, um, the impact that that kind of arrest would have, and then how DeSantis is sort of finally, delicately starting to swing back against Trump, who has been calling him names now for several months. Oh, and um, which name is the best? Which, oh, Meatball Run. It's not even a competition. Meatball Run is perfect. Oh, no. Meatball Run! Well, it depends nope. on what you're going for. That weight loss drug or something. He, he's, he's dropped a lot of weight. Have you noticed that? Yeah, the Ozempic uh, theories yeah. are rampant. And listen, I'm not going to rule anything out, nor would I suggest that it was the wrong decision for Meatball Ron, um, who I am generally favorable towards, uh, to uh, get into the Ozempic game if he's running for president. Um, looks are obviously very important in the presidential game. Um, I think if Donald Trump was intentionally leaking that his arrest, his potential arrest was being leaked. If, if Donald Trump's strategy to not get arrested was to float the possibility that he was going to be arrested, it was a brilliant strategy because what came afterwards was a really serious discussion in the political arena um, about why this is just whether people were making this argument from a moral perspective or from just a purely pragmatic partisan perspective as Democrats, why this was going to backfire, why arresting him on a trumped up campaign, fr uh, campaign finance fraud, campaign finance violation charge was a disaster. Um, all of that seems to have chilled what was a very eager uh, prosecutor. And we don't know, we don't know, but uh, he, he may have people around him uh, that are putting the brakes on this or encouraging him to put the brakes on this. I refer to Alvin Bragg when I say that. And uh, as far as DeSantis responding to Trump, um, 
it, to your point about why it's like, why, you know, it's, it's annoying to have to talk about some of this stuff so early. And part of that, from my perspective, is just because we, we straight up don't know. We, you know, everyone thought when John, when Trump went in on John McCain, that was it. He was over and done with. Um, but we didn't know. And I, my instinct is to say that Ron DeSantis is firing back too early. It feels like a mistake to me to fire back this early um, and to dignify uh, the things that Donald Trump is saying with a response, no matter how dignified that response might be in and of itself. Um, because it just, you start mud wrestling and nobody wins when they mud wrestle with Donald Trump because he is the undisputed champion of American mud wrestling. So that's my sort of like quick, uh, take on all of that. But it's weird because people are making, I think, some of the same mistakes that they made in 2016 in this race to speculate. And by doing so, they might actually be affecting, um, it might actually be affecting outcomes in ways they they don't anticipate. Yeah, I want to talk to you about the role of conservative media in all of this, and uh, but but I just want to make one point before I do that. Um, I'm really disappointed that Donald Trump workshops his nicknames. I I said this on Fox Business last week, but like, did you not think that they sprung from his head like Athena from the head of Zeus? Apparently, <laughs> no, <laughs> the process. This is very disappointing to me, honestly. Like, I, it's like finding out, like, for the people who thought the WWE was real. Like, that's that's the moment I'm having right now. I'm really disappointed <laughs> that he workshops the nicknames and like tests them out on a on a focus group and all this stuff. Like, this is this is very lame. I thought they just they spontaneously came to him and he just had this amazing talent for making these hilarious nicknames. But apparently, they're workshopped. I mean, I think it's a little of both. I think he spontaneously comes up with, for instance, Meatball Ron, and then he thinks, well, maybe I can do better. So he tosses another one out there, and maybe it's Tiny D. And, uh, you know, he just say he kind of snowballs. But I feel like it's unsurprising because he uses, he's always like used Twitter um, and now True Social as his testing. It's like his, his test lab. Yeah. I mean, I feel like if he should be workshopping it with anyone, it should be with us, the fans. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I can I make the t- the case for Tiny D for a second? Uh, by all means, it's not a bad one. I just love you people. Know, Ron DeSantis is is not a tall man. I mean, he's not short really, but compared to Trump, he's going to look short. He has tall guy Ron energy though. Age, and Trump is really tall. Yeah. And like so he can he can, you know, drop the weight and then meatball Ron won't make any sense. It actually will make him sound like more like, you know, uh meaty than he is, you know. Um, well, I think Trump bullied him. This is why why bullying is important. Obviously, I think Trump bullied him into better health. <laughs> yeah, that's true. No, so I, I mean, I, my, my whole take on this is I don't think anyone, including Ron DeSantis, can win in this kind of matchup with Trump. I think his only route has to be to say, you know what, like this guy wins this game. He's very good. Like just to laugh at it and say, like he's excellent at this kind of mud wrestling. You know why the media is pissed off at me and why the left is pissed off at me. It's not because I come up with uh, a fabulous nickname. It's not because I know how to, he's just, it's because of what I've done. Mm. Um, And I'm actually going after the institutional power of the left, which he has done more effectively than any conservative politician in my memory. Um, I mean, I, I said on Twitter, like I I do like Ron DeSantis a lot. I, I think I trust him more to be competent in office. But the question I wanted to ask you is whether you think um, exactly people like us, and this is a Dave Marcus theory, and I, I think there's a lot of truth to it, exactly people like us who are sort of conservative media types, um, 
laying it on too thick for Ron DeSantis against Trump, I think we are actually hurting him. And I don't think we're convincing anyone. And I think the issue is underlying is much more about trust than it is about like a list of policy solutions. I, I don't know what you think, like to what extent the sort of obvious preference of quote unquote, like whatever conservative media or media figures who lean right for Ron DeSantis is actually a positive thing for him. It's horrible. In fact, I wrote about that right away. As soon as Donald Trump announced, I, I wrote a, a long piece basically about how conservative media um, was making a similar area, error to what they made back in 2015 and 2016 by pimping out DeSantis so much and making it seem as though he is the only option. And it's, you know, this, it's, it's a, a similar mistake. And I have to sneeze. So one second. <laughs> That came on fast. Um, <laughs> it's a similar mistake because it's this um, disconnect between people who comment on politics in a public platform professionally or semi-professionally and the rest of the country who does not trust, frankly. Um, I mean, think about Ted Cruz. Think about Ted Cruz in 2015. Think about, uh, you know, even... Marco Rubio, to the extent he wasn't scathed by the gang of a whatever, there were all of these options in twenty. Scott Walker, twenty fifteen, twenty sixteen, um, and you know they, they these people would tell you themselves, uh, you know, probably what this looked like, but um, they had a serious problem with not the public not trusting anybody who was a politician over somebody who's not. And Donald Trump is the guy who comes in and says, everybody else is lying to you. Every other institution, the media, the government, uh, they're all lying to you, but I'm not. And that makes his quote, but I'm not a much easier pitch because you're the one who is accurately diagnosing the problem. doesn't mean that he's telling you the truth. In fact, I think he exploits that trust a lot. Um, but if you, if the people who have just been railroaded time and time and again, still trust Donald Trump over a guy who has been in politics almost his entire career, like Ron DeSantis, if they still fundamentally can't get over that question, that is very possible. And um, the judgment and scorn of uh, conservative media who says, what the heck is wrong with you? Like DeSantis is right here. He's obviously a better choice is rooted in sure the... Okay, Siri thinks that I'm talking to her. What a disaster. As I told Inez before we started, everything's falling apart. Um, but it, it's, a, it's rooted in that same fundamental disconnect and, and condescension. Um, and they just seem to like, people seem to be totally blind to it. So, I mean, to, to fight back a little bit, which is not, I mean, I think I largely agree with this analysis. I think actually like, um, you know, I, I understand why people are not going to take like, my word for this that I think like Ron DeSantis <laughs> is the better candidate. Um, I, I understand where that distrust comes from. I, I do worry about, I think my biggest worry is about like sort of boomer politics, actually. I, I think underlying the trust with Trump is this idea that actually, I guess I'm more black pill than the average like boomer Trump voter, I think. And I think that is a function of generational change. Um, Mm -hmm. I still think there's a lot of boomers out there who have like their hearts completely in the right place. Like they're, they're 
decent, upright American people. They're patriotic. Like um, they're, they're wonderful people, but they don't actually deeply in their heart of hearts understand how bad and corrupted our institutions are. And mm-hmm. they think that if they just like get Trump in there and he like does his thing um, that it's going to fix the country. Um and they think that they can just kick out like a few bad guys like, you know, Fauci or whoever um, they, they, they almost have a more. Um, and I don't mean this in a negative sense. They have a more conspiratorial view. I actually think it's worse than the conspiracy. In other words, these these institutions are so deeply corrupted and so ideologically captured that you can't just get like the one the one right guy in there. Like we know you and I know and, and people who listen to this podcast for sure know because I harp on it constantly. But um you know, that the presidency is not as powerful as you think it is. Um, and that there is an entire unelected bureaucracy, you can call it the deep state, the administrative state, whatever you want to call it, that has aggressively moved against Donald Trump and his presidency for four years. And then after he left office as well, and that's indict, you know, trying to brag potential indictment is just part of that. Um, the problems are more serious than that. Like, and, and whether Donald Trump, you know, actually knows how to deal with essentially his own bureaucracy and maybe he's learned his lesson this time i I don't know like maybe he's so ticked off this time and he like didn't understand coming in he is an outsider he did not have a bench right um there's all these reasons why he might have changed his mind and and look at the problem differently now but um it seems to me that there's a generational divide here is like the the imagining that you can just elect this this one guy and without actual like serious structural reform, a lot of which has to take place legislatively, um, that like you're going to do anything but just make the libs mad and make the deep state mad for four years again, which I mean, admittedly has its charms. Um, but that's that's what I'm more what I'm worried about. I'm worried about what just like I didn't care much that the Republicans didn't take the Senate in the midterm is because the question was, what is Mitch McConnell going to do with that power? Well, not, not much important, um, not anything structural. That's for sure. Not, you know, deliver any actual, you know, wins um, to the ability of the American way of life to survive, um, you know, 10 or 20 years from now. I have kind of the similar, weirdly, like a similar feeling about Trump where, you know, he hasn't really, he didn't really prove in his, he, he was like a good president for 2012. He was a much better president than I thought he would be, but he didn't actually like structurally change every, anything. And you can see that every one of his achievements, especially his administrative achievements have been overturned by the left. Um, and some, a lot of them in the first hundred days, right? Mm-hmm. So like, I, I just don't know that he has that strategic focus that is necessary because he is like, we know he is a narcissist. He's the narcissist that we deserve. Our country deserves. That's true. Well, and that's the thing, like, this is the benefit of a Trump DeSantis juxtaposition, um, which is, you know, again, nobody knows if a a dark horse, right. And my light just, everything is falling apart. Um, Nobody knows. Of the American empire. Jashinsky's recording studio. Truly is so perfect. Uh, But, I was just gonna say, I think that's the benefit of juxtaposing Trump and DeSantis. Um, but I still, ha- I think there are actually a lot of Trump voters who are very, very, very favorable to Ron DeSantis. What will make them not favorable to Ron DeSantis is if the sort of pundit class 
acts like Ron DeSantis is the only reasonable choice. And it's irrational for anybody to still be, it's, it's irrational, conspiratorial, bigoted, reckless for anybody to still support Donald Trump over Ron DeSantis. Um, that will be very, very bad because Donald Trump will be able to uh, capitalize on that energy in the same way he did in the Republican primary in 2015 and 2016. So uh, where conservative media does play a really big role is in conservative primaries, as in Republican primaries. And um, that that is when Donald Trump could totally ride that to another nomination with the base so divided and fractured that if you have people split among Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Mike Pence, um, everyone else, Donald Trump can get 30% of the vote again and be just fine, even though the majority of Republican voters would prefer a non-Trump candidate. So all this is to say, I think you're right. Um, and it's something that concerns me as well with conservative media getting into this sort of tank um, or putting blinders on, protestantist blinders on, that he is sort of the reasonable iteration of Donald Trump in a post-Trump world, that this is the most, you know, a politician can be like Trump without having the things that, to your point, and uh, prevented Trump from being an effective leader. Like, you know, I mean, it's the double-edged sword of Trump. You can't have the successes of Trump without the failures of Trump. You you can't have him going after the media without him tweeting about Mika Brzezinski's facelift. Like, you, you cannot have a version of Trump without those things. And no matter how reasonable, responsible Ron DeSantis is, he will never have that appeal um, of also being the guy who's tweeting about Mika Brzezinski's facelift, which, by the way, do I think most voters like that? No. Do I think some voters absolutely freaking love it? Yes. <laughs> it's like Trump the entertainer. It entertainer comes in and blows up American politics when you are a boomer who's watched your town die, who's watched, um, maybe you've been really successful, you live in a good community, but you've watched the country change and become basically unrecognizable before your eyes. Um, and you're just sitting back like, what can I do? Trump looks appealing. Yeah, I mean, I think we underestimate that to our own peril and just um, really, I don't know, the big takeaway that I took from 2016 is like, I really don't know. Uh, I, I did not know what the base was looking for. Um, and I really felt like I did because I was part of the Tea Party and like we had been rowing together in the same direction. And I was very much part of that like cruise type of Republican who was anti-establishment and and very much to the right of Mitch McConnell, but saw no appeal in Donald Trump whatsoever. Mm. Um, and it was interesting, like going back and reading Tim Carney, your your former boss, Tim Carney's book, right? Um, where he, you remind me, I think it's, is it Alienated America or is it the book before that where he just he talks about the differences in the base voters? For Alienated. Okay. So, cause yeah. I reread it for having Tim on the podcast um, about a year ago. And I was shocked to discover because when I first read it, when it came out, I was like, yes, this is what's wrong with people who are so into Trump, right? They, they don't have ties to community. Like they're, they're not actually, um, you know, sort of living this conservative lifestyle um, that, you know, that, that is a key part of, of being a conservative, right? Um, they, they are sort of alienated and, um, and they're complaining about the game being rigged and that's just like sort of a conservative form of victimhood. And then reading it back, um, reading it again after like, let's say in 2021, 
uh, I was shocked at how much I agreed with the interviews he did with the Trump voters. And in fact, like I was the one who didn't see how fundamentally corrupted, rigged, whatever word you want, the institutions of this country really were. So, I mean, that just gave me like, a, I'm not a generally a humble person, but that just gave me like a big dose of <laughs> a big dose of humility, you know, um, like. But I, your I, self-awareness is good. Yeah. Like, I, yeah. I, I mean, I have my opinions, but I'm like very aware that I don't speak for um, a large part of the Republican base. And frankly, like I think in 2016, they were more right than I was. So why would I, you know, sort of really privilege my own thoughts on this matter? I mean, obviously, to some degree, we all, we all agree with our own opinions, right? But like, um, you know, I, I just I have a, a measure of humility now, I think, after that, because I really going back and reading that book, it was like, you know what, everything that these guys are saying in these interviews is actually completely true. It's in the open now. But this is an opportunity for DeSantis, I think, to um, to, to the extent that you, you cannot mud wrestle with Trump. There's just no way you can do it. One thing I would say, though, is he could um, play that exact card. He could say, I learned a lot from Donald Trump's election in 2016. I learned a lot from you, Donald. Um, I think this is the, the, the only shot the country had at being back on the right track is uh, your election in 2016. I, I support it immensely. I am somebody who acts and who wins. Um, I have acted countless times in ways that are taking on the institutional power of the left, and I am winning. You can't say the same. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's a pitch that convinces me. I just don't know when it's so fundamentally about trust. And I think you've seen what the reaction has been, right, against DeSantis. Like, DeSantis is a no conceivable policy sense establishment. Right. Yeah. But when it's more about signaling and trust than it is. And, and like th that's not an illegitimate that's not an illegitimate basis for somebody to make up their mind on, you know, mm -hmm. when they've been burned so many times in the past by especially like by Republican politicians saying one thing and doing another. I, you know, I, I, I can understand why that trust gap is there. And I, I don't think we really can convince people. I think that's the uphill road that Ron DeSantis has is to really make his case and say, like, look, I know that you know, there, there felt like there was nobody at all to trust. Um, mm -hmm. But this is what I've actually done. And this is what I intend to replicate uh, at, at the, the national level. And I think you'll compare it favorably to the last Trump administration and, and what Trump is promising to do now. Um, I don't know. I don't know if that case succeeds or not, but you know what? Uh, like I said, we have, we did, we've done 20 minutes on this and, and uh, <laughs> it was supposed to be five. Yeah, I know. We, um, we will have many opportunities to talk about what I'm sure will be a very uh, nickname-filled uh, GOP primary. So, um, with with that, I'm I'm, I'm going to lay down my one prediction for the GOP primaries. I've already been wrong about it slightly once, but not in essence. Which is, I don't think Nikki Haley can break five percent. Um, I said three percent before. Now she has five percent in some polls, but I don't. I think you might be wrong about that. You think I'm wrong? You yeah, think I think you might be wrong about that. Yeah, I, th I think she's reaction to her. And I and I'm somebody who like laughs at the idea that anyone would vote for Nikki Haley. But I think there is uh, some boomer appeal out there for Nikki Haley. Um, so I, that's I know. I'm not prepared to say the same. <sighs> I mean, look, I know that she has done she was a decent governor. Um, so it's not that but, but there's something about the way she talks that is just like rubs me so much the wrong way about like especially when she's got that whole like girl boss like republican girl boss vibes where she's like got her books like anything men can do women can do like what what's the name of her book it's like um 
If I it, think it's called lean in. No way. <laughs> I think it's uh, if you want something done, dot, dot, dot. And the implication is, oh, ask man, when, right? Don't put ellipses in your book title. <laughs> You're right. Maybe That's... there is a boomer appeal for that. Anyway. No, there is. There is. There. I, I really I really think there is. Um, but it depends. Like, can anybody other than Trump and DeSantis break 5%. I think that's an open question because when you have about 30% of the base, somewhere between 20 and 30% of the base, totally loyal to Donald Trump, um, then everyone else is going to be split. So it really depends on how many people run, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If everybody can collect their 5%, um, you might end up. (laughs) Yeah, no, I definitely think you're right. But um, we're going to move on to what I think is a little bit of a um, underlying a lot of this, this primary battle, right? Um, I'm going to show a couple of graphs on this screen. And has learned how to do the graphs on StreamYard. <laughs> so if you're listening to this, just imagine <laughs> she's in a baseball hat, which is good to see in and of itself. Yeah, and Keenan, she's coding. Domestic extremist coming out soon. <laughs> we got you, PG. Um, cool baseball hat that I have on. Yeah, no, we like apparently, I mean, literally 1% of our audience is on YouTube. Like it's all listening on, on, but if you're <laughs> listening, for the record, you can see our lovely faces and Peachy Keenan's domestic extremist hat. And you can see the graphs that I'm going to put up badly because I didn't put the white background in. So they're just going to pop up over our faces like badly. And I don't care, but I think they're important to show for, for the 1% of you who are actually watching on YouTube. Um, <laughs> so there's, and I'll, I'll talk through them for, for people who aren't. So um, there's these two different graphs. So this is a long-term um, study that measures sort of uh, percentages of people. Um, and it's like a systematic year after year uh, survey. And it, uh, it measures what percentage of people say uh, a particular value is, quote, very important to them, right? So it asks people a series of values, like choose which ones you think are very important, important, uh, you know, neutral, not important, whatever, right? And there's a massive slide. So patriotism as a very important value has gone from 70% to 38%. Um, religion as a very important value has gone from 60%, 62% to 39%. And this is from 19, uh, 1998 through to today, uh, 2023, right? So having children, you know, 59% of people in 1998 said that was a very important value to them. 30% of people say that today. Um, community involvement, really interesting. Um, in, in 1998, 47% of people said community involvement was really very important to them. And then it shoots up um, in 2019 and then completely crashes, which I think is really, we can talk about that. That's really interesting. So it shoots up to 62% in 2019. But by the time you get to 2020 has, has completely cratered 27%, right? So just over a quarter people think that community involvement, involvement is a very important uh, value. And then finally we have money um, going from 31% in 19, in, uh, in 1998 to 41% to 43%. So an upward trend saying money is very important. Um, And then before we kick off the discussion with Emily, I want to put one more graph on here, um, which shows, which I think these are kind of related, or or at least they work together in a a sort of demonic uh, (laughs) whirlpool. Um, uh, So this is a percentage of 12th graders who respectively have a driver's license, have ever tried alcohol, have ever been on a date, and have ever worked for pay. And they're all completely cratered since the late 1970s, right? Um, to the point where you have um, half as many. I mean, no, so it's no, it's not it's not a zero baseline. So um, it's going from, you know, driver's license goes from like 90% all the way down um, to something like 72%. And you can see it's continuing to drop 
Um, tried alcohol is way, way down, down below. Um, so just over half of um, high schoolers have uh, tried alcohol, um, worked, ever worked for pay and ever gone on a date. Um, so all of that to say, um, Emily, what do you make of this, this sort of cauldron of, of changing values, right? Where um, essentially anything associated with uh, tradition, community, religion, nation is all on the decline. Any kind of risk-taking behavior is all on the decline. Um, but you have a uh, increase in people saying that making money is a very important value to them. Yay. Um, you know, this is where this is where what we were actually just talking about. I think the conversation we just had is, is surprisingly a useful preface because when we uh, look at where people in uh, sort of normal American families, neighborhoods, communities still find appeal in agents of change that are anti-establishment you know, from Donald Trump to Bernie Sanders, Sanders to honestly Marianne Williamson. Um, the the reason they're doing that is it's it's hard to put a finger on. And we all kind of know that. Like we can do what Michael Anton did in Flight 93 and sort of walk through all of the serious um, looming threats to our institutions or urgent threats to our institutions from sort of a legal um, or political perspective. But there's also just something that has shifted so dramatically. Um, that's hard to put your finger on. But I actually think if you look at these charts, and I recommend people do, they're in today's Wall Street Journal. This is uh, March 27th. They are stark, and they allow us to visualize and to quantify to quantify to some extent the vibe shift that has taken place for both, I think we would agree, cultural and economic reasons over the last several decades. And so when boomers are just reeling, looking around, um, grasping for some sense of understanding and reason, and maybe they make irrational political decisions, um, it's because we are in very irrational, dizzying times where it's a sense of emergency. Nobody is, uh, hardly anybody, I should say, is rational in uh, urgent emergency situations. There are people, thankfully, who are and are trained to do so. Uh, we don't have many people who are trained to address political emergencies, actually. Oh, man. And if there's a real collapse, I'm going to my father-in-law's place in rough and ready California. That guy, that guy would make a really fair warlord. He's a I bet he would. Fighter, fighter, you know, he would like grows his own food. He's not yeah. even a prepper. He's just good at it. Like it's not, it's in, in other words, he's not prepping for Armageddon. This is just how he lives his life. So <laughs> that's where I'm going. When all this well, but think about this. Like, this is what it drives me crazy. And again, I'm, I'm referencing Marianne Williamson again, because I recently interviewed her on Federalist Radio Hour, but like that's, and it's not like she's the same as Bernie Sanders, but this, this, um, politicization of both the psychological and the lifestyle is long overdue because we're living through a period of time, as I just explained to a group of high school students a couple of weeks ago at the Reagan Ridge, where Betty White, who they all knew, her first time on TV was an experimental broadcast. It was an experiment of TV, and she died in the age of TikTok. Uh, this is incredible and the way that human existence changed air travel um 
you know, having globalized ingredients shipped and food w- made with those globalized ingredients mass produced um, so that you don't have to do subsistence living like your father-in-law out in Rafferetti, California. Like this is a, a rapid and dramatic transformation. We talk about hyper novelty here all the time, but it, it is you know really the big thing. When you look at this chart, um, it shows what hyper novelty is doing to norms and is doing to them really quickly. And it, it actually, I think, makes it very easy to understand why people would still go for Donald Trump over Ron DeSantis, why people would still go for Marianne Williamson over Kamala Harris or Joe Biden even, or why people would go for Bernie Sanders over any of them. Um, it's a, I mean, or people just staying home and overdosing on fentanyl um, or numbing themselves with antidepressants or food. I mean, all of these different options. Um, we are miserable uh, because we have made a series of really bad choices for understandable reasons. Um, we have, you know, obviously hiked the quality of, of life in terms of like practical lifespan, although that's dipped in recent years, like we are living longer. We do have um, miracle cures to many different diseases. Um, we have cleaner living situations, et cetera, et cetera. But something has gone deeply wrong in all of that too. And uh, I think, you know, to the extent these numbers help us understand, you know, th- these are the flip side or these are the the other side of those numbers about deindustrialization, um, about fentanyl overdose, about breakdown. These are these are the sort of soft um, consequences of all of those things. And I, I see the, the journal poll has just like sent shockwaves through the media today. And again, that tells me that they're not living in real America because in, you know, so-called real America, I hate when people say that, but they're, they're very much living in media bubbles because um, none of this is surprising whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, it's really hard to make. I think this was the fundamental bottom line about a lot of these technological conversations, which I think are, I think you're right to identify them very strongly with, um, with, the trends towards alienation. But I mean, I, I think there's kind of two halves of this, right? Which is, um, which I think is always our, our bit of a, ba- a back and forth, right? There's the sort of Mary Eberstadt half of this, right? Where you are unable to deal with rapid technological change um, because all of these other bases of identity, like healthy bases of identity, one might say human, uh, you know, bases of identity and connection have been disappearing for a while. Um, whereas, you know, perhaps if the iPhone was introduced in like, even in 1953, we might've been able to deal with it in a a better way because people would have all of these built-in connections in terms of like, they would be going to church in person every Sunday, for example, like that was the average American would do that, right? Your average child, um, was, was in a public school, um, where, where the parents actually, and then this goes both ways, right? Um, the parents could could to some extent trust what the school was teaching that it was a patriotic school um and at the same time you know teachers complaints are validated right because if the child misbehaved at school you could count on the fact that the parents were going to punish the child and institute some discipline um like the, that kind of high social trust arrangements and i'm not by no means saying like 1953 america is like the pinnacle of everything that is just good and beautiful um but in, in terms of these like trust, high trust relationships, uh, I do think that our society was a much higher trust society in 1953. And therefore you have a way to like pull, if you have that high trust and high 
connectiveness, um, like real in-person connectiveness um, in society. I think that's actually the only anecdote to pulling people out of a very online world. Like I, I like Twitter as much as anyone. I'm constantly tweeting and stuff. But, um, you know, you know, when I'm not thinking about Twitter is when I'm hanging out with actual people, you know, because the in-person conversation is always more attractive than the facsimile of it online. And I worry that if you never get that experience, and especially for the teens, it's even worse, right, for the people who are doing their teenage years during COVID, they never really got that experience. And so they have nothing to compare it to, except like these very awkward sort of first attempts at doing it as, you know, young adults, right? And I don't know, I, that, that really scares me, like the, the lack of basis, um, the lack of a basis in, in the modern philosophical framework, um, you might call it a theological framework, uh, absent a God, but whatever we want to call that framework, the lack of actual reasons to not live in the metaverse really does scare me. Like there's very difficult to justify remaining human if you don't draw on this larger Western tradition. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a, a sort of nihilistic hedonism. Um, nothing matters except pleasure. So might as well be happy. And you see that all the time in the language of the postmodern left. And it's not just the left, it's postmodernism in general. It's actually seeped into curriculum in public schools that, you know, we, obviously we could go on forever about this, but the sort of feeling centric, self centric approach to life. And you get into sort of asking a fish um, if they're wet. Um, when it comes to social dynamics and relationships. And my experience uh, working with students, they tend to be more conservative, the ones I work with, so it's not a perfect sample size. But post-COVID is that they know they're missing something. Um, it's the it's sort of a version of the god size hole, right? Um, it's a it's the person size hole. It's the um, interpersonal relationship sized hole. The the normal life sized hole. Um, and that's it's it's hazy for them because they have always existed in a world where Wi Fi is like oxygen. Um, you don't think twice about it. Uh, there's no wire. <laughs> there there is no wire. You you ha you are not tethered. To technology in any sense whatsoever, unless you're in a rare time where you're just fully out of service, or you live in a very rural area where it's it's hard to get service sometimes, um, you are just you're always always uh, connected to the internet. Thus, you're always always connected to every single person in the world, basically, and every fact about the world that has ever existed um, is the sum total of human knowledge. As uh, I think Phil Wegman put it once, it's in your pocket at all times, and that's strange. If you if you uh, didn't grow up in a situation before that, I mean, uh, the smartphone and Wi-Fi are really dividing lines. And I remember when when I grew up, um, it was you know having you know, people older people would would talk about times when the phone was on a cord. Um, and I remember my grandparents still had their, their phone on a cord in the kitchen. And that was very normal for people probably just 10, 15 years older than me. But that was the sort of like, back in my day, I had to talk to, you know, the guy I had a crush on in front of my parents because the phone had a cord. So I was pretty much relegated to the kitchen. Um, yeah. and, and that I, was I like, have a story about this. Uh, oh, please. I'd love hilarious. to hear Um, and old. Uh, so I got a cell phone when I was in eighth grade and it was one of those like, it wasn't a smartphone, obviously. It was like a flip 
phone and where you still had to type with the keypad, which I got really, really fast at doing, by the way. I actually did not like the transition to the actual keyboard because I had figured out with predictive text how to do it really, really fast with one finger. Oh, no look. The no look in class. You just sort of pull it out of your phone pocket, put it next to your leg and look up at the teacher. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, That more than anything defines my era. Anyways. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but like this is when text messages exploded overnight. And so they were 10 cents per text message. Mm -hmm. And I was sending... I I was sending thousands of these text messages and my parents would get this bill and they were so mad at me. It's like $800 for the text messages. I have a really similar story actually. <laughs> Away the phone from me. I was in deep trouble. I I have a really similar story. Um I used to and maybe this is kind of relevant to the problems that have always been baked into social media especially Facebook. You probably remember there was a time when you could post to people's walls on Facebook via email. Um, And you would, you don't remember that? Maybe I just never did it. I don't know. Yeah. So you could set up email on Facebook. So like my phone to go on the internet was like stupid expensive, but I could use data to answer emails during the school day um, in like 2007 or 2008. And I was using so much data to post on Facebook um, to like respond to people's wall comments, to respond to people's private messages that it was the same situation as you. It was like, I, my parents got like a $700 bill one month and were like, what the hell are you doing? And I was like, I'm just on Facebook. But it was because during the school day, it was becoming really difficult to be separated from the internet. Um, even back then, it was becoming sort of pre-iPhone, early iPhone. Um, it was becoming really difficult to be away from Facebook for the entire school day because there was action happening on Facebook. Other people were on Facebook. There was stuff to be seen on Facebook. There was stuff maybe you missed from the night before. And you're sort of being pulled in that direction. Um, even if it costs, like your, to your point, 10 cents a text message, your young mind has a hard time resisting that. Yeah, well, that was the thing. Like, that's what I'm thinking about in the way, the reason it's relevant, not that I like... Uh, not that it isn't funny that I, I texted my crush so much that I <laughs> ran up an $800 phone bill. Um, that's hilarious. But uh, no, that's what I was thinking about. It was impossible for my parents to stop me. Even back then, like they just had to take away the phone because mm-hmm. as soon as the phone was there, I was going to text this guy. And there was no, there was nothing they could do about it. Like there was no threatening that they could do about it. Um, you were just thirsty. So much heart. Yeah. <laughs> like, I just love the way he played Led Zeppelin, you know? On- <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> um, no. <laughs> it's so embarrassing. Um, no, but there was no way they could stop me. Like, my parents were generally, you know, um, they, they were they were great parents and they were overseeing my activities and stuff. But there was no way I was addicted to doing this because this was very important to my social life. And yes. the only way they could not get an $800 bill was to take the phone away from me. Yeah, it's brand and it was brand new for parents and it still is. That's why like I have a I, I think parents are groping for answers from politicians and um they should be looking more into their own communities, of course. But we're getting to a point where people who are now parents never grew up with good communities and don't know the value of being able to live comfortably among neighbors in a high trust environment. So um we're getting to a point of almost no return. If you never know how good that is, then you have nothing to strive for. Um, It's just, it's just sort of lost. And I think that it's totally understandable. Like when I look back on those times, like 
parents had no reason to like they really couldn't have known truly and i i have nothing but like empathy for people who are going through this as parents now and have been going through it for the last 10 years especially parents i, I mean i've interviewed as i'm sure you have as well people who uh, dealt with like rapid onset gender dysphoria as parents and um got absolutely no help uh, from the public school system or from their community or, in some cases and, no yeah. I, and i truly in some cases you just want to be slack-jawed like why why were you letting your 12-year-olds on Tumblr or wherever it is? But they really, really didn't know because it came so, so quickly. Yeah. it's. I mean, and it's just such, such, such a part of the world that it's really, really difficult. I mean, you almost do have to go like full Benedict option to protect your kids from this stuff. Um, and that's not a tenable way to organize society. I'm not saying it's not the right call uh, for a lot of these parents who do really like just make sure their kids have no access to any of this stuff but um it's not a tenable way for a society to to operate right I, I, but I, i'm glad it, i think it was really well phrased um a few minutes ago when he said there's like a person-shaped hole in you know in in a generation of children who hasn't done sort of the normal socializing um i hope that's true uh but there's such different reactions to this this is one of those like things that continues to weirdly continues to shock me is the number of people who don't who like listen to what we're saying and agree with it and don't think it sounds dystopian they think it sounds awesome you know um there's this this guy um jeff jarvis who i guess is some lefty guy i was going back and forth with on twitter per usual um he's a professor at cuny and something called buzz machine and um anyway but but he posted these interviews that the times did um with with kids like early teens mm -hmm. and he thinks oh these kids sound like totally fine right um and and the 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 reaction that he can have i mean the the, the teens i'm going to read some of it it says i talk a lot more online than i do in real life for the same reason um i'm more myself when i'm online in school i feel like you're just being watched by teachers you can't do as much stuff as you would at home um Let's see. Online feels p more peaceful and calming. You don't have to talk to anybody in person or do anything in person. You're just sitting in your bed and chair watching or doing something. When I'm online, I can mute myself. They really can't see me. I can't just mute myself in real life. Like this sounds super depressing to me, but this guy, Jeff J Jarvis was like, they're just fine. Don't project your own like views about what life should be on these kids. Like these kids sound desperately lonely. And he doesn't even see that. So, and I don't think it's a, I don't think it's like an ideological front. Like I think a lot of people legitimately, you know, there's, there's the, the sort of lefty Jeff Jarvis view of this. And then there's also like the, the, just the tech utopianist, whether left or right, who believe like, no, this is actually the evolution of humanity. Like this is, this is superior. Like it will be superior for all of us to be in the matrix. I think there's, a reckoning um, with that somehow happening. I don't know why Elon Musk reportedly pulled a lot of funding from ChatGPT uh, from OpenAI, um, which which is in charge of ChatGPT. And obviously, Elon Musk has Neuralink going, and that's dystopian in a lot of different senses. But I, I wonder if part of the reason he kind of dropped out of the OpenAI project is because he's uh, started to maybe question some of the, the techno optimism that uh, just soaked Silicon Valley where you grew up, obviously, for a very, very, very long time. Um, and I think, you know, it, so, so that's that's possible to me. I don't the think that my lifespan span is a very, very, very long time, Emily. Yeah, yeah, it is a very, very, very long. Um, 
I, I'm about to join the the thirties club. I'm real close. I'm <laughs> on the precipice of my thirties. Anyways, I'm I'm two days away from being thirty. So you're oh, welcome. Oh, happy birthday! Happy advanced oh. birthday! Thank you, thank you. Um, that should have been the whole focus of the show. Obviously, no, I'm kidding. Um, yeah, I'm I'm old, just like this Inez show now. will then come out if I'm doing my math right, which is always a question. This show will come out on Emily's birthday, so everyone has to wish her a happy birthday. Thank you. Another year closer to death. It's a big accomplishment. Um, well worth celebrating. Anyway, all that is to say, um, I don't think it sounds utopian to the majority of Americans anymore. And for the life of me, I can't understand why people still insist that all of this is going to be worked out. It's all going to be for the good. Um, I just, there's no part of me that understands that much like you. Um, it's, it's, if you look at the numbers, it's, we're on insane levels of depression, especially among teenagers, anxiety. Our obesity levels are basically all you need to know about whether this curve is going to be, you know, is the moral arc of technology long and bending towards health. No, it's not. It's creating a hyper novel situation where we uh, prize pleasure over uh, pain or struggle or anything else. It's, it's, it's all uh, happening very quickly to the point where people's heads are spinning and they don't know uh, what's up and what's down. Um, but I think, you know, it's, it's clearly going in a bad direction and the techno optimists are, have become, have faded into uh, minority status and are just like the TikTok hearing last week on the Hill. Uh, it always makes me nervous when you see bipartisan consensus on anything. Um, so as a good sort of skeptic, I felt extremely nervous watching Democrats and Republicans agree so vehemently. Um, and that entire thing on TikTok should have happened five years ago. I mean, it's just absolutely ridiculous that anyone is applauding the bipartisan nature of that tech hearing. Um, but I will say it is you, you sensed in that conversation um, a lot of I mean, Facebook was not treated that way in 2008. <laughs> like, they were not treated that way. in 2008. Yeah, well, maybe that's I mean, that's good. But ultimately, there's no way like the, the government is going to be able to keep up with the technological developments on on this stuff. Um, so to some extent, whether you're you're in the camp of um, being open to more regulation, as I think I, I am at this point of big tech, um, I do think to some extent it's folly to believe that we could get out ahead of, I mean, like, if we were getting out ahead, of this would already be in the rearview mirror. We would be talking about regulating AI, um, and we have not. We're still in the, like, ooh, look and see. What? How many teeth this AI thing can add to a really creepy image of <laughs> of, yes. of a, a hot anime chick with too many teeth? No, and I think I I understand. Like I never got in into like political media or media in general to write about tech. Um, I've always been fairly interested in tech, but it was never. I never expected it to be such a focus. And now I feel like it's it's really all that we should be talking about in politics um, because it's making it impossible to reverse the trends in the wall street journal survey that you uh, just posted. If, if people are watching in reference, if people are listening um, it's, it's making it fundamentally impossible for us to rebuild. Even if we wanted to, even if we could get to a consensus on some of these things, which on like free speech, we can like, if we can go back to the, the old sort of American norms um, of legal and uh, sort of social 
speech boundaries, we're going to be in a better position. But we can't rebuild that in this uh, tech climate because to the point that you always make it, Nez, all of our institutions are now staffed by people who are hostile to that, that went through our school system, who still have all of these broken incentives on their internet platforms, Twitter, Instagram, whatever. Um, and, and so to dig ourselves out of that hole is virtually impossible um, in this this social media, smartphone, digital, uh, hyper digital environment, um, and part of that is you know AI is about to explode um, like a nuclear bomb, literally, um, like a, like a nuclear bomb. Uh, I, I mean, I, should, I said literally, but I meant metaphorically because I'm a I'm a white millennial woman in, in the internet sense of literally. Yeah, but I meant I meant it in that like it is going to be the uh, parallel. And I've heard that by people who work on this, I've heard people who work on this literally refer to it as an Oppenheimer moment, um, the red flags that are being raised about AI right now. Um, so we think our conversations right now about Twitter, Facebook, Instagram are bad when AI is sort of fully baked into our social cake. Um, our ability to rebuild these blocks, and I'm talking like next several months, um, not in several years, we do not have time, um, is going to become even more difficult um, than it already is. Yeah, I mean, like when you're talking about the institutions um, and the ludicrous idea that we talked about last time about how we are nowhere close to peak woke um, and think it's ridiculous to think that we are. Um, when you look at the institutions, I think the last one to fall really um in some sense i guess you could you could say the military but i mean the military definitely there was a dei hearing as well in the last week and it was the most disappointing terrifying thing you've ever heard like all of our top brass repeating like diversity is our strength basically word for word over and over again while being asked if this is actually helpful for military readiness or recruiting and none of them have you know it's my husband was saying, like, um, asking me, like, do you think that you need a lobotomy to like be in the top ranks of anything in American life right now? And <laughs> I kind of agree. It's it's not even that they're really far left. It's that they're like repeating these platitudes that they clearly have never thought about for half a second longer than it takes to just imbibe them and then regurgitate them back out. Uh, just really terrifying. But the military being one case, but the you know, I think we would be amiss not to talk about what happened in. The institution of law um in in the last month which is the stanford dei incident um and you have you know law students in one of the top law schools in the country uh, screaming threats uh at a federal judge um and to me this is like kind of old news in a sense but uh, i know for a lot of people like my friends who are lawyers and then uh, people who don't follow some of this stuff on campus as as closely um this was really shocking, especially like attacking a federal judge that way. I mean, once upon a time, mere ambition would protect against something like that, right? right. You don't have, even if you thought it, you probably weren't going to be screaming at a federal judge. I mean, every single one um, of, of the students who behave that way, like they, they should be asked about this on character and fitness for the bar. Like, um, I, I, I think there's a lot to commend, um, uh, Ed Whalen came on the other podcast IW does uh, at the bar where we talk about legal issues um, along with uh, Tim. I can't remember his last name, but um, he's the the chair of FedSoc over at Stanford who actually put together the event. Um, and, you know, Ed was Ed Whalen was suggesting like, um, you know, th 
we need to basically make on the, on the clerkship application, like uh, under penalty of perjury. Have you ever participated in this kind of disruption? Um, I mean, so, the, but when the judiciary goes in this direction, I really think like bleep is going to hit the fan because there, mm-hmm. there actually is no, um, there are basically two cushions between the like long house DEI like uh, mostly, you know, female administrators who govern increasingly every aspect of American life in the elite and this core of people in mostly in the middle of the country, but certainly like in rural areas and in blue states as well. But, you know, there's still a lot of like men with guns in this country. And there's a certain amount of cushion between that kind of soft power um, that is enormously effective and the kind of hard power of still kind of heritage American types in the center of the country. Um, one of those is federalism, but the other one is the rule of law, right? It, this is the, the institution that we all ultimately need access to, even if you're off the grid, even if you've removed yourself and Benedict optioned yourself out of society, you still need the government to enforce your rights sometimes um, and to enforce the rule of law. And when that really goes, I mean, I, I, I don't think actually our future is civil war. I think it's a series of like Wacos or just mm-hmm. mass public disorder, um, yeah. mass sort of low level public violence, vigilantism, like all, I, this is not like a pleasant idea. And to see this happening at Stanford University, Stanford Law School um, is unsurprising, but should be a reminder of how, like, what happens when these people run the DOJ and become judges, right? What happens when you, you like, let's say, like, Joe Schmo from the middle of the country, the judge that hears his DUI case is one of these people? Mm-hmm. I don't think a lot of us have fully thought through what kind of chaos and violence that could create. Because, like, this DEI dean, like, she's talking to a federal judge, I, I think his composure was amazing. Um that kind of soft power application where you're also just screaming like, ow, ow, don't hurt me as you're like basically stepping on someone's face. Right. Um, she was saying like, I'm so uncomfortable to be up here. It makes me so uncomfortable. It makes me so uncomfortable. Right. Um, that's like maddening and enraging. And I, I don't know that the left has truly thought about, or maybe they have and don't care, but like, <laughs> What kind of, of to, to use your analogy of the nuclear bomb with tech, like what kind of nuclear bomb metaphorically you can set off by applying that kind of power to guys who live on ranches in Texas? So, yes. Um, and that, really that is domestic extremist hat. This this chat. <laughs> yes. Um, very. I think that's very well said and stark um, to think about it that way. It's. This, a series of Wacos. That's a good, I, I think that's a, a good indication of where we may be going. I would say, I think to some extent, we have already entered that era. Um, I think probably we look back on the leak of the Dobbs decision as the moment we knew uh, the rule of law was crumbling quickly in American society. I, I mean, I, I have a pretty, I'm pretty confident in my theory, not for any, I have no insider information, um, but pretty sure that was a Sotomayor clerk. Um, And it's, it seems like that the lack of 
willingness on behalf of the Supreme Court to punish that person, um, that person's incentive to leak to Politico. Um, and then the fact that, I mean, I, I was among the people who said, oh, within 24 hours, whoever did this, they're toast. They're toast. Within 48 hours, whoever did this, they're toast. You can't do this at the level of the Supreme Court of the United States and get away with it. They, they surely, um, but either there's a combination of incompetence or cowardice, um, over at the Supreme Court that uh, has, has meant we have no punishment for whomever, whomever did that. And, um, their incentives to do it, I think are very clear, um, and bad. <laughs> like the the fact that it's the incentive is it's not like Daniel Ellsberg. Um, it's a very different type of thing uh, who tried to use different channels. Um, you know, we could have a different debate about that. Or we have a different debate about Edward Snowden or whomever else. But it's very what happened with that was very different. And to see that, I think it's it's similar to why the Stanford Law situation is shocking. This is the cream of the crop. This is the best and brightest. These are people who have been entrusted with the responsibility of attending a top tier law school and all of the privileges that come with it. The responsibility and privileges of clerking on the Supreme Court of the United States um, and breaking those norms. I mean, the, it just doesn't mean anything anymore. And it is frightening. Um, sometimes I feel this in myself. I went to public school to not have a sense of Republican virtue, small all small R Republican virtue that, you know, Tocqueville would write about. And that was sort of like a, an unquestioned strain of Americanism. It didn't matter who you were, what your background was in this country. Um, for, for decades, that was the hallmark of Americanism was that small R Republicanism that built our, our little platoons, built our communities, built all of our institutions. Um, and if you don't have a sense that when you take an oath to clerk on the Supreme Court or uh, when you are studying the law and are preparing to be barred, that that means something, um, that these institutions have uh, you know, history in a Burkean sense, wisdom in a Burkean sense and meaning. Um, my goodness. Uh, and, and it's not that everyone had this like intellectual conception of what that was before. Um, you know, it's not like they're actively thinking of it, but there were certain things that just made sense um, because the world made more sense and we talked to each other and we're healthier and all of that. And it's just when you have nothing but pleasure, um, that's we're just going to be, like you said, Inez, uh, heading towards some really uh, brutal scenes, I think, in the years to come. And I know that that's pessimistic. I'm not saying that's definitely going to happen, but if I had to bet, sadly, that's probably where I would put my money. Yeah, I mean, the only the only thing I'd add to what you said is, you know, we do have norms, right? They're just they're totally opposed to the norms that we're making up the the stuff of American life um, in in some continuous way before this now. I think I think we are comparable. The, the one the one civil war sort of comparison I think makes sense. I think we are as fundamentally divided about really critical underlying values as we were in 1850. Um, that doesn't mean it's going to play out the same way. I, I actually don't think it'll play out the same way. I think a lot of the other factors are different. But um, you know, we do have real norms, right? Compare how unafraid these students are to scream real threats by the way that like they screamed at a federal judge they hoped his daughters would get raped um 
look how unafraid they are, rightly, of consequences. There are no consequences. Stanford's already ruled out consequences for the students involved in this. How unafraid they are of any professional consequences or or um, administration consequences for what they've done to somebody who quietly, without telling anyone, works for you know a big corporation and, for example, donates to uh, an organization that is in favor of traditional marriage, for example, or, or how afraid somebody would be to use the biologically correct pronouns to describe somebody who claims they are the opposite sex in the office environment. We do have norms. They are ruthlessly enforced. The, the, the difference is essentially those norms are ruthlessly enforced in all of the institutions that have anything to do with elite power. And I, I don't know if they are reckless or stupid um, the, the people on the left, probably a combination of both, that they don't realize that there there isn't a different, entirely different way that half the country is living in a day to day world. Like, and sometimes I, I think this this makes like you know this makes the David Frenches of the world like that they, they have too too rosy a view on what's going on because they live in nice communities where a lot of these traditional American values are still like the norm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they don't realize how badly those norms have taken a beating um, and, and actually been replaced with with opposite ones um, in large parts of sort of elite society and elite institutions. Um, yeah. Charles Murray writes about that in Coming Apart. Super Zips um, look a lot more traditional than everywhere else. I'm not sure I agree with that in what I'm saying, though. I don't think they have traditional values i think they are enforcing these these new norms they're just you know um and, and i don't think that'll hold by the way i don't i don't think the charles murray thing about like the traditional um class dynamics of like having the the elite families be intact i i, I think this trans thing might blow that up but anyway that, that's a that's a whole different subject but i i um the point i want to make is just that comparison between um who gets who's afraid Right in these elite institutions, I don't think a lot of people on the on the left understand that uh, <laughs> there are a lot of people in this country who do not live their lives in that cowed way day to day, and they're not they're the ones who are not dependent or interacting with these elite institutions. And I don't just mean like random guys um, on a ranch. I mean like there there is still a large part of the country, millions and millions of people who live their lives not in everyday interaction with these elite institutions, and who are not, you know. <laughs> they're they're not afraid <laughs> to um in the same way that everybody who operates in these circles uh you know accepted like people like us sort of accepted because we like get paid to which is an incredible privilege by the way which i keep repeating we get paid to to say the things that um other people are afraid to say but anyway i i, I just I'm, I'm rambling a bit here but I, I do think that like there's a collision coming and i don't know if the left understands what that collision is going to look like and what they're provoking. They just, just like before January 6th, they didn't think like, they didn't think that the right would riot. Mm-hmm. And so they were totally, totally unprepared to control um, sort of a riot that broke out at a protest because nobody had ever rioted on the right. right? Not on that scale. Right. Not on that scale. I think, I think in the same way, they're completely unprepared to deal with, what actually happens when you what's her name dean steinbacher or something like that when you when the collision course of the dean steinbachers from stanford law school and like the rancher in arizona 
that for now are still sort of buffered from each other. It's funny you say that because I actually went to Arizona for the first time a couple of weeks ago and was having a lot of the same thoughts that you just expressed sort of looking around and I would see on Twitter, um, you know, people posting images from our cities and saying things like America is a failed state. And I was in California right before uh, going over to Arizona and I was looking around and I was like, even in California, which I think on paper is a failed state. Um, people are living a very high quality of existence. A lot of people, not everyone, but there are a lot of people, not just the super rich. Um, and it doesn't mean there isn't injustice. It doesn't mean people shouldn't be having better life existences, but it is not Haiti, even in California. Um, and it's not even close to it. And then in Arizona, you realize, you know, people in, in healthy communities, you look around like, man, a lot of people in a lot of this country um, have have still not been as infected by some of these poisons. Now, of course, with trans stuff, it is absolutely everywhere. It is seeped into every community. Um, doesn't matter where you are ge- geographically. It doesn't matter it's where you are. Into the working class now. I, yep, hundred percent. Yeah. Oh, I think it. I think it was working class first. Um, but I, we, that's like another debate. We can debate that some other day. I don't want to. Yeah, but, um, I think but it's down. But I think it's it's ubiquitous now but this is the odd juxtaposition um of you know american life and i think it's this um what's the best way uh it's it's the sort of indication that an earthquake is coming it's not uniform not everybody is having the same experience that people who live in manhattan um and pay all of their taxes and prefer not to you know step over human feces or people who flood san francisco or um, people who, you know, n- not everybody is having the same experience in America, but some people are having a really bad experience. And some people's experiences um, are on the precipice of coming into conflict with the same forces that caused those other people to have a really bad experience. So you're right. I think the clashes between sort of normal and abnormal is is imminent and even people who still have the privilege of sort of enjoying that normal existence are it's being that bubble is being popped incrementally um and yeah i I think that if if normal can win out uh, i'm really pessimistic because um it's normal but by this curve of like hyper digital existence that we live in you know normal but um obese normal but uh depressed so it's just a, a sliding scale of uh, sadness. <laughs> I would say that's a really great pessimistic note to end on, but I really <laughs> I know we're running, we're running pretty long here, but I, I would be amiss. But if I didn't ask you before you go as culture editor and somebody who pays attention to these kinds of cultural debates and realizes the importance of these cultural debates, um, there has been a bit of a back and forth over, um, I think a Netflix show that um, recasts the, the queen and then princesses of England as uh, by black actors. Right. Um, and, and there's this, and I, I don't even want to do the, the normal, like sort of um, like Twitter level culture war, a tomato throwing back and forth. Um, but to ask you this interesting underlying question, right. Um, about resetting characters uh, and, and, and casting and, and sort of what is the difference between um kind of a forced or, or a PC or, or a kind of recasting that makes no sense. And like, I don't know, for example, um, here's a crazy idea. You can 
rewrite Hamlet to uh, be played by lions and in a Disney movie. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's basically what Lion King is, right? So where where is the line between like so so has this netflix um this netflix show is is it is it just ludicrous um or but where do we where do we draw the balance between allowing actors to act in other words to play uh characters that they themselves uh do not represent in a thousand different ways physical and mental um or psychological uh and this kind of really blatant and obvious sort of DEIing, gaslighting, everything to death, where like they're writing out every, you know, every white character they can, including the the Queen of England. Where do you stand on Hamilton? Um, I mean, it didn't bother me as much as the historical nonsense. I never went to go see Hamilton because same thing with Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson. I mean, I, I never went to see, I'm not a big musical person to begin with, but I I I guess the historical inaccuracy would bother me more than, than recasting Hamilton as, as um, a Hispanic guy. Right. But, mm-hmm. but oh. I think it would be different if it looked totally, totally different from him. Like they also wouldn't like to watch a casting of Hamilton where Hamilton was portrayed as a six, four, like blonde football player, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. There's a, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I see exactly what you're saying. There's um the in Milwaukee they do a great annual uh rendition of the Christmas Carol as and they do in many communities and uh, I think this is probably more out of necessity than anything else like anything that's sort of PC or ideological but um it'll be like half of the Cratchit family is white and the other half is uh black Hispanic and for me it's just always been like this is taking me out of the like you, you lose the suspension of disbelief um at a certain point and again i don't know if that's ideological or not but i do know um in the ideological sense when you that when that stuff is contrived you never get the suspension of disbelief which is completely essential to art you have to follow the rules that you set um and if you're using somebody else's work you can't reset their rules or if you're using history you can't reset the rules of of history and i'm not opposed to that being sort of the open inquiry um the, the domain of artists to sort of feel like you can openly like question and play with and challenge some of those things. But um, I do think with history, if you are doing something like that in a sort of ideological, expressly political way, which I think is probably the case with the Netflix series, um, that it's not, you know, rooted in some sort of challenging, like, if anything, you're not, you're not challenging norms, you're just um, reaffirming um, the left's norms about what is uh, what, what is politically correct and what is palatable and what is um, the sort of uh, the, what gets the cheap applause lines in our social media culture. Um, and so yeah, I think that's, that's all it is. It's not the like debate over black Ariel from little mermaid. I mean, it, it's, it's a, t- it's a very different thing when you're taking real history. Um, so I kind of agree with both you and Dave. I don't know. I'm somewhere in the middle. I'm I'm right in the fence. Yeah. I mean, so for the record, Black Ariel didn't bother me. It didn't hit me the same way because it was a totally fictional character. So why can't you? And it also didn't seem so... The the, the line I've been trying to draw, but it, admittedly it's a messy one, um, is between a kind of essential and incidental kind of Aristotelian <laughs> distinction between the <laughs> essential um, and, and the incidental characteristics of a character, right? Um, mm-hmm. Where... 
my comparison that I made was like, okay, you you couldn't have cast somebody of normal height to play Tyrion Lannister in Game of Thrones, right? Because like him being a dwarf is part of the story. It's an essential part of the story. It's an essential part of the character. His like his psychological profile and his actions don't make any sense when you change that characteristic about him, right? Getting a little nerdy for me now. Yeah. <laughs> um, but like with Ariel, I just didn't see that it wasn't an essential part of the character to me, like what color. Oh, that the, the mermaid. Yeah. The, the, the yeah. fictional mythical creature must also have the same skin color. <laughs> yeah, Like there's a blue octopus. Who's the main bad character in that. I mean, I just not, it's not a bridge too far for me in that context, I guess to yeah. your point about suspension of disbelief, right? Like it's not, a, it's not a bridge too far. Whereas I, I mean, I think you would have to change the entire setting to make the Queen of England black, right? Well, like, that's the thing. You could yeah. reset it, the story. You could imagine like a, a parallel universe where, um, you know, England is a multi-ethnic country uh, back in that day as opposed to today. Um, and where, uh, you know, there were like black queens and kings of England for, you know, hundreds of years you could imagine that world and, and I think faithfully represent something um, of a character, but just to throw it in there as the, I don't know. I just feel gaslit about the whole thing. Like, yes, we can have a discussion about whether or not it's possible for somebody to like make that believable and actually create suspension of disbelief, but that's obviously not what's going on. They're obviously just gaslighting us because they're, it's, they're doing it to make the DEI quota. Like that's why. And I kind of resent being told that I don't get to notice it. Well, that's, yeah, this is exactly it. Like, if you are subjugating um, the suspension of disbelief, which is the essential component of fiction, if you are subjugating that to politics, what you are doing is not art. Now, do I think artists should still, like, is it, does it bother me too much that artistic types um, have fallen for the like woo woo ideological bait. No, not at all. Uh, like it's, it's not surprising whatsoever. We've seen it time and again, whether it's with casting women and blah, blah, blah. And we could have that whole conversation, you know, do you make George Washington a woman? And then do you have to change America to you know all of that? But um, at the end of the day, if you are subjugating the thing that is absolutely essential to good fiction, to fiction period, which is the suspension, suspension of disbelief, to politics, um, what you're doing is more politics than it is art. And I think it's entirely fair to say so and to critique somebody for saying so is absurd. Well, we have it on record that Emily thinks I'm not absurd, so I'm going to use that one going forward. I don't uh, think Dave is absurd either, to be fair. <laughs> uh, Dave is always absurd. Dave is a friend of mine. <laughs> <laughs> um, next time he comes on, he'll he'll be smoking on smoking his cigarettes on the, on the podcast. Actually, before we sign off, I just want to throw out a shout out to other guests and friends of the pod, um, Justin Lee for winning, speaking of art, for his short story winning the Passage Prize category that he submitted in. He, uh, the story is delightfully creepy. Uh, when the Passage Prize book comes out, I highly recommend it because um, the story is still creeping me out. I read it like, I don't know, at the end of last week, and I'm still like kind of scratching my 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 arms in in uh in in creepy terror so uh, i think that's a, a good sign for for justin's story so congrats to him um and on on, on that note i think we'll we'll let emily go after an hour and 20 minutes of of excruciating yeah. talk with old people that's right uh, hey <laughs> I, i'll do it for you in this
<laughs> I know you have an early dinner to get to. Absolutely. The That's special at Perkins is about to end. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Emily, for coming on for another one of these, these uh, After Dark episodes. Anytime. Um, thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Ina Stepman, including After Dark, is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to inez.stepman at iwf.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, yes, it does exist, or iwf.org. Be brave. We'll see you next time on High Noon. <laughs>